Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Guys, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John. And we're going to spend our time moving through chapter 1 and all the way to chapter 5. And and we're going to spend some time a little bit in the gospel this morning. While you're turning there... I want to I want to share with you a, a fun story. I, I I've always loved uh, C.S. Lewis. I've always loved um, Tolkien, which was one of his uh, colleagues, and I love the the imaginations they have and the stories they tell. And there's amazing truths that you can find inside of these stories. I think all of us know this. This is the power of of uh, the written word. So, in chapter six and seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is uh, specifically uh, the, book, uh, the book or the chapter or the section in that Chronicle of Narnia called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, C.S. Lewis focuses on a boy named Eustace. Eustace is a fun character. Um, Eustace, uh, according to Lewis, wanders off, and he, uh, he wanders off avoiding his chores. In just a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about some good or maybe not so good parenting advice. But, so he wanders off doing his chores, and in his wandering, he enters a dragon's cave because he wants to plunder its treasure. Okay? He had chores aboard the Dawn Treader. He wasn't going to do them, so he wanders off, and he plunders the, the treasure in this dragon's cave. The problem is, is that he turns into a dragon himself. Yippee for Eustace, right? So he turns into a dragon, and afterwards, Eustace comes across a lion. He doesn't know who this lion is when he comes across this lion, and he comes across this lion, and the lion changes him back to the boy that he once was. And of course, if you're familiar with, uh, with Chronicles of Narnia, you know who this lion is. But upon that transformation, Eustace apologizes for his behavior, Okay. He apologizes for his behavior. He no longer feels the desire to go back to his former way of living. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Lewis says that he began to be a different boy. But there's actually a fun line that comes right after that. It's, uh, it's, the stress is that he began to be a different boy. That he had relapses. This is this little boy changing back. So uh, in, in parenting advice, if you want to take it. Um, if your kids aren't going to do their chores, tell them they're going to turn into a really ugly monster. Um, see how it goes for you. Maybe it won't work, but you know, hey, email me. Tell me how it goes for you. I'd love to find out. I'll, I'll let you test it out and then I'll employ it if it works, right? So, so he began to be a different boy. Now, discovering that this lion that had changed him was in fact Aslan, Eustace asks Edmund, who is a main character in the, in the story, and Edmund's his cousin. So he asks Edmund, he says, who is Aslan? Because Edmund is telling him that's who has changed him and transformed him. Uh, and he says, who is Aslan? Do you know him? To which Edmund responds with one of the most powerful answers in the book. And you can, you can see C.S. Lewis's attempt to communicate the Christian story all throughout his writings and especially Narnia. But Edmund responds to Eustace, uh, Eustace's question, who is Aslan and do you know him? And here's what he says. He says, well, he knows me. Well, he knows me. 
I know that he knows me. Now what he goes on to say is he says that he is, uh, he's the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me, or over the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. Now if you want to see Lewis's connection to the Christian, the Christian uh, story, you can see that uh, Aslan, who is a lion, is the great lion. He's the lion of Judah. That's, we see Jesus in that, right? And then he says that he's the, he's the son of the emperor over the sea. Obviously, he's the son of God. And then last but not least, he saves, uh, he saves Edmund and he saves Narnia. He's the savior of the world. You get these connections. It's, it's glaringly obvious what, what Lewis is doing. And Lewis admits that that's what his agenda was. It wasn't to be exact, but his agenda was to communicate this great story of redemption. Now, the reason that I share this is actually to highlight the importance of what is a two-way relationship between us and God. Last week, we focused on us knowing God, and this week, we're going to take that turn and and look at what it means to be known by God. Although Edmund clearly knew Aslan, Edmund said, he's the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea and the savior of me and Narnia, Edmund's answer emphasizes what I believe is the most important leg of uh, this revelation, and that is, well, what I do know is that he knows me. Um, Edmund also says in this, I'm a dork, so deal with it, but um, Edmund also says in the book, he says that, uh, that uh, uh, who's the girl? What am I thinking? Who's his sister? Lucy. Yeah, sorry. So he says Lucy probably knows him more or he knows her better. <laughs> but all of us have, have experienced that in our Christian life. We've met somebody and we're like, yep. That's God's favorite. I see how it works, right? So, so Lucy was that. But anyway, so, so Edmund says, he knows me. And I want us to understand what that looks like. Last week, we learned that knowing God is clearly an essential part of God's plan. Knowing God is an essential part. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 12 says, to know as we are fully known. Right now, what is the story? What is the truth of our lives? We are looking through a mirror darkly or looking through a glass dimly. We do not understand fully what we need to understand at this point. Now, I want to briefly share a couple of insights into this. And if you're a note taker, you, you probably want to write some of this stuff down. But, uh, but listen to me. We do not see God fully as he is. Now, this should lead us to two different things. Number one, it should lead us to a level of humility, shouldn't it? Right? We, we sometimes get dogmatic about the very things we shouldn't be dogmatic about. We're acting as though we've seen Jesus face to face or we've seen God face to face and we need to be careful. So on one end, because we see in a mirror dimly or through a glass darkly, we ought to humble ourselves when we're talking about God. We should, we should use language that says, what I see in scripture is, and we should communicate what we see. Now that's one side of this. The other side of this that you need to keep in mind is there are things that we know definitively, dogmatically and we should never move or budge on them. This is where it gets hard in this culture. This is where we don't like it. Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to the Father. I don't have to sit here and make an excuse and say, well, I see through a glass darkly. Or it's just like other religions. We're all grasping at the same uh, mystical piece of God, and we're all coming to it from different angles, but we'll all come to the same conclusion. No. 
The Bible makes it emphatically clear there is one God, his name is Yahweh, right? There is one God, his son is Jesus, and he has given us of his spirit. This is an important thing. So on one side, there are areas where we need to be dogmatic. We need to stand our ground. Otherwise, what's going to happen is the continued drifting of the evangelical or Christian church into just nothingness. We're going to talk like about God just the same way everybody else in the world does, the generic God that we all believe in, and we will all have a false sense of hope that that's good enough. Jesus is who we're looking to. And there are things in Scripture that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt as a matter of fact. But there are also things that we should humble ourselves when we're talking about them. The goal of the Christian is to see Jesus face to face somebody someday. And when we do that, then we will know as we are fully known. Can I get an amen? Okay, uh, I got one, but he was too late. So I, I, I'm asking for more, right? So we will know as we are fully known. The objective is actually something like what we see in the life of Moses in the Old Testament. And you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 9 and 10, Joshua is about to take over the leadership of Israel because Moses is, is going to die. And Joshua, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Now, here's what you need to connect this with. You need to connect Joshua being filled with the spirit of wisdom with what you read in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. When uh, they need men filled with the Holy Spirit. They were Christians. Of course they have the Holy Spirit. That's not the question. But they had a spirit of wisdom to do what? To perform the actions and the work of the, the, the congregation. They needed to help the, the widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. You need wisdom to be able to take care of those things in the church. And so Joshua needed the same thing. And it says that Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. We see this all over the book of Acts as well. The laying on of hands, the impartation of certain things for the work of service inside of the body of Christ. And so he laid hands on him, and the sons of Israel were then, uh, were then able or were then willing to, and this is such an important thing, they were willing to listen to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. This whole, uh, this whole impartation piece that happens to Joshua from Moses is the passing of, uh, some Christian circles like to use the word mantle. It's the passing of the mantle to Joshua. And once it happened, it's an amazing thing that the scripture says they listened to Joshua the same way they listened to Moses. It's pretty awesome. That is an important step in the Christian life. Uh, the, the church, uh, the New Testament talks about laying hands on elders and on deacons and giving them, you know, this, this kind of blessing or this call to an act of service inside of their life. But verse 10 is what I want you to notice. It says, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. What was so unique about Moses? Whom the Lord knew Face to face. See, it wasn't just that Moses knew God. It was that God knew him. He knew 
God face to face. That is an uh, an absolutely powerful uh, piece of imagery that I think you need to connect. So last week we learned the essential need to know God. And this week, today, what I want you to do uh, is, is take that turn that says being known by God is arguably the more important of these two matters, okay? Being known by God. Now, although I can't prove this, C.S. Lewis's um, inspiration, it would appear, for Edmund's answer comes straight from Scripture. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles there, keep your spot in 1 John, but turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. I'll spend a little bit of time on this because it's just awesome. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, however, at that time, Paul is talking to the church in Galatia. He's, he's addressing Christians. He says, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those, by which, uh, to those which by nature are no gods. So what time in their history is he talking about? Pre-Christ, okay? He's talking about their pre-salvation story. And he says, you, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So to quote the, the most famous prophet of all time, Bob Dylan, uh, you, are going to, you are going to serve somebody in this life. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody, right? And so in their life, they were serving that which was not a god. Verse 9, though, is where we, we want to focus. It says, but now that you have come to know God, so they're Christians, now that you have come to know God, and look at what Paul kind of throws in here. He says, or rather, let me stress something else, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Paul makes this Really important stress that the Christian has been known by God. He's not discounting in any way our knowledge of God or our knowing him. But please remember, this is the same, uh, same exact scripture that tells us that even the devils know God. Even the devils know God. That's not enough, okay? There is a mutual relationship that is very important here. In Galatians chapter 4, though, when he says, you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, the stress that he says about this knowledge and about this relationship is so fantastic. He says, because you know God, because you have been known by God, how in the world can you turn back around and live for the things you were once enslaved to? So let me ask you a question. Can Christians sin? You guys are not amening that enough as if you thought it was untrue at some point. But you can turn to the person next to you and ask them if you've sinned this week, and I bet you get a bolder answer. But the idea here is that we, we sin, okay? But as I've said many times, although we have the ability to continue to sin, we do not have the permission to continue to sin. God has called us to righteousness, Amen. So when Paul says, what an amazing line, he says, now that you know God or rather have come to be known by God, how in the world is it that you're turning back around and living after these things? This apostle Paul 
is telling us something very important about our relationship or our, uh, the markers for being known by God. And that is they are related to our behavior, our obedience. They are, however, in view of mercy, but they are connected to our obedience. Being known by God is identified by how you live your life. It's an absolute fact in Scripture. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 7, we touched on it last week, uh, Jesus was confronting false prophets, and I'll just read it to you. I want you to listen to this really quick, because I want you to see the sense of urgency that the Scripture gives, that Jesus himself gives, for being known by him. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? They answered, no. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. I want to just take a pause here for your personal study. You can study this on your own and get excited about it if you're a geek like me, but you can get excited about it. Who is Jesus referring to right off the bat in this? False prophets, okay? Those who are peddling a false gospel. And in that context, he says, beware of false prophets who uh, inwardly are ravenous wolves. If you really want to know what the motive and what the heart condition of those who preach a false gospel is, Jesus lets us know. You don't have to judge them. Jesus already lets us know. He says they're ravenous wolves, So you need to be very careful on those who proclaim something that is a false gospel. But he says that you will know them by their fruits. That's a a phrase that we're familiar with. We've heard it all of our lives. You'll know them by their fruits. Now this is true in every Christian's life. You can look at their life and see if they are marked by the fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh, you will know who is who. That's true. But the context shows us that Jesus is talking about those who peddle a false gospel. That means the false fruit, the bad fruit that's being presented is the bad message that they're declaring. So I want you to connect those dots. It's really important. This is how important false prophets and false messages are to the church. They have to be taken note of. These people have ravenous hearts, okay? So verse 17, he goes on. He says, every every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. If you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus, you are not going to turn around and change the gospel. You're going to have the same heart as the Apostle Paul that says, if we preach anything different or even an angel does it, you ignore them. You stick with what the word of God says. That's how the Christian's heart is going to be. So he says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. They can't preach a good gospel, church. They don't preach a gospel that saves you. They preach a gospel that says, hey, if you'll just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, if you'll just do more things, finally God will love you. Do you know the clear difference between our gospel and that gospel? Our gospel does call for obedience. Our gospel does call for a strict uh, obedience to the commands of Christ. That's in the Great Commission. Go and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. But all of that is governed by Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is in view of mercy, you present your body as a living sacrifice. 
When you've been set free, it's a joy to follow the Lord. If you are continually wrestling with Jesus, there's a chance you haven't given up the fight fully yet. So please listen to me. It's important that we catch these connections. So in verse 19, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. How are we going to know them by their fruits? We're going to know the gospel that they preach. We will know their behavior. We will know the actions they take. But the context shows something very clear and important that we need to understand. So verse 21, this is where we get to the stress of being known by God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Knowing God is one thing, being known by God is an altogether different thing. There are people who know God and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that in your name? What are his words to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. You see the stress? Wow, that's humbling. And we look at it and we say, aren't they doing good things? I mean, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? And as I said last week, if that is intended to be a true statement, or if it's just the, the gospel writer and Jesus quoting the, the, the lie that these people would say, uh, if it is in fact a true statement, remember, God can heal people and often does and delivers people, often does, in spite of you, not in light of you. God has used wicked men and women all throughout the ages to bring about his purposes, to bring about care for his people. So don't get caught up on, your, on your, uh, your pedigree of actions inside of your life. It's not, about, it's not about who you are and what you have done in order to make God know you. It is either that you are known by him and therefore you do what he asks, or he doesn't know you at all. And that's a staggering proposition. So he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Today, our question is, how do we know that God knows us? Or in other words, how do we, how can we, like Edmund, answer with boldness and assurance, well, God knows me. God knows me. I know it. The answer is actually simple. It's not easy, but the answer is actually simple. I hope you understand that premise there. When somebody tells you how to live a healthy life, they tell you you need to eat right and exercise, and that's a pretty simple message, isn't it? How easy is it to get up and go to the gym every day? You guys are just not here this morning. Hard. I love that. Hard. How easy is it? It's not easy. It's difficult. The same thing is true. What God says of those who are known by him is that they obey him. But there are times when that is difficult. It's a simple message, and yet it's challenging as we live it out. One of the most important things to remember, and I've already stated it, is that all of our obedience comes in view of mercy. All of it comes in view of mercy. Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you wanted a life verse, use that one. Write it down in context, please. But that's a good one for you to do. So back to 1 John chapter 1. This is where we're going to get into these observations of what it means. Uh, what, how we know that we're known by God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. 
This is fun stuff. Everybody ready? You're as ready as you're going to get. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard and, uh, from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is a God of light. God is a God of holiness and righteousness. And there is no darkness in him. And if we claim to have fellowship with him, and that word is a two-way word. If we claim to be known by him and to know him, then we will walk in the light as he is in the light. But if we don't, what are we? If we claim to know him, but we don't walk in the light, what are we, church? We're liars. Please say that louder with me. We're liars. This is important. The positive, feel-good, false, nonsense gospels of the world don't ever want, want to make you feel that you need to repent of your life. That Don't ever make you want to feel like you need to change your ways. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, Jesus loves you. But the New Testament writer John says, if you claim to know him but don't look like him... You're a liar. Don't take it out on me. Send an email to John. This is really important. But he says, you're a liar. We lie and do not practice the truth. He doubles down. He doubles down. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we're going to see how he doubles down in this lie statement in just a second. But let's, let's stop here in verse 7 and analyze a couple of things. The first one is that Jesus, if we have fellowship with him, if we're with him, known by him and know him, then he cleanses us from all sin. Nathan, I thought, I thought we were cleansed from our sin once we accepted Jesus. I thought that was a one and done. We're already, we're already good. Back to that question. Can Christians still sin? Yes. The next question I should ask is, do you? You better not say no, right? Do you still sin? Of course you still sin. You are called to run to the Father, to confess your sins, and Scripture says he's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. We're going to get there in just a second, okay? So the cleansing of sin is something that happens on a regular basis, but here's how this uh, begins to change in our lives. We are cleansed from sin and cleansed from sin and cleansed from sin, and the more we're walking after Jesus, the Scripture says the more we're coming to look like him. We're growing in our sanctification. Can I get an amen on that one? We are growing in our, we ought to be growing in our sanctification in this life. We can still sin. We don't have permission to sin. If we sin, we confess our sins. But as we walk with God, it begins to change us. There's a passage I used last week uh, in Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 and 13, that teaches this principle very clearly. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourselves have not let me know. You yourself, God, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses is kind of uh, lamenting here. Here just a bit about the journey. Again, last week I told you he had just come down from Mount Sinai. He was mad at the people. All of this stuff had happened. And it says, moreover, you have said, I have known you by name. This is God's word to Moses. I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, 
Moses' response is, if that's all true, if you really know me, God, then please do something about this. So he says, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways. And look at the next line or listen to the next line. It says, let me know your ways that I may know you. Every day of your life that you learn God's ways and you walk after them, you become closer and closer in your relationship with the Father. You learn how he thinks, how he acts, what he would want of you towards your neighbor. This is important. How many of you feel that as Christians you've got this down? You're like, I I said yes to Jesus, I got this thing licked, I'm ready to go. No hands? I'm I'm not the only one because I'm not there either. We, we don't feel that way. We are growing in our sanctification. We're growing and learning what it means to look like Jesus every day of our life. Just like Moses, here's what we need to say to God. God, let me know your ways that I may know you. Back to 1 John. Cleanse us from all sin, Lord. Cleanse us from all sin. Call us to righteousness and holiness. Guess why? Because every step of that way, you get to know God a little bit better and a little bit better. Now, in that verse 7, there's another piece that is just for extra credit here. And that is, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I've stressed unity a lot in, in the recent past because it's, it's this important. God desires, God is pleased when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Okay? Now, how do we get to unity? Well, you can listen to different pastors, different preachers tell you a thousand different things. You can do a a church-wide program to try to bolster more fellowship, and those things might work. You can can tell people that they need to just get to know each other's likes and dislikes, and all of a sudden we we become a social club. But sadly, I'm not sure we're accomplishing the goal of being a unified people. John told us right there in that line, he told us how we can become one with one another. He says, if you'll obey, if you'll come into faithfulness, if you'll begin to walk in the light as your father is in the light, guess what happens? We start to be unified. We start to have fellowship with one another and it's not manufactured. How many of you have been in the church for most of your life? How many of you have been in the church for most of your life? Come on, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to hold my hand up until you're agreeing with me or telling me the truth. Okay, cool. You've been in the church all of your life. How many of you can say in that time you've struggled at times to develop fellowship and to be close to people? Or you met some really stupid people and you just didn't want to hang around with them? Okay, no, 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 don't, don't, don't stress that too much. But okay. I apologize for being that stupid person. But here, here's the deal, right? We, we have all been in the church. Those of us have been in there for a long time. We've spent a long time in the church. We've desired fellowship, and we've just not found a way to do it. Everybody has their programs. There's a thousand books written on the subject. James tells us the answer in one line. Walk in the light as he is in the light. It won't be manufactured. You won't feel like you're being squeezed together into a group of people and forced to like them. You'll all of a sudden see the beauty in who they are because they look more and more like your Savior. You see, it's, it's like a pyramid or a triangle here. Every one of us is starting out at the bottom when we come to know Jesus, and we're walking in that light every step of the way. What are we doing? We're walking towards Jesus. And what happens in a triangle? The further you go towards Jesus... Where are we at in relation to each other? 
closer and closer in proximity. The idea here is that unity is forged in obedience. That's how this comes together. That's how this works. So I want you to connect those dots. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light, and it will all come together. So verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's just another way of saying you're a liar. There's his double down, okay? If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Verse 9. But, here's the but here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our trespasses, of our sins, and to cleanse us from all un righteousness. What an amazing line next. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar (laughs) and the word is not in us. This is pretty impressive, church. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We all continue to sin. It doesn't mean that we're continually sinning all the time, never stopping. That's all we ever do. That's a, that's a sad mischaracterization of the fallen nature of man as Christians. We are new creation. Amen? We're a new creation. If in any way we can say no to sin and walk in obedience to God, that's one area we're not utterly sinning and falling apart. So the logic doesn't follow that we're just stuck in this cycle all the time. We are becoming more like him. But if we do sin, and that I think is an important thing, if we do sin, not when we sin necessarily, but if we sin, we can confess our sins to the Father, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Powerful, powerful truth. Some of you are here today, and you're struggling. You feel like the, the lot of your life, the majority of your life is characterized by just sinful actions. Remember, if you feel conviction at all, if the Spirit of God is convicting you and you are broken about this, God is speaking to you. Respond to Him. Respond to Him. If you feel that you're worthless and no good and low down and everything is just going bad and you're going to do nothing but stoke the fires of hell someday, if that's the thought that you have in your mind, understand that if you didn't care what Jesus thought, you wouldn't care to feel that way. You'd go, who cares? Stoke the fires of hell, whatever. That's your attitude. But your attitude is not that. Your attitude is hearing the voice of God and it's breaking your heart. Run to him, church. Run to him. I had somebody stop by the church this week just struggling with this same exact thing. Struggling with, I'm just worthless. I'm just nothing. It's just, I've sinned too much. God's done with me. Meanwhile, he's weeping about this. So let me ask a question. If you didn't care what Jesus thought, why would you weep? Why would you be brokenhearted? Why would you care? You wouldn't. So what's beautiful about that is not to say to somebody in that situation, it's all okay, it's all okay, just just go about your business. You're saved by grace, that generic form of grace the world teaches today. You're saved by grace. No, instead I said, okay, so let's, let's repent. Let's call on God. Let's walk right after him. Let's, in view of mercy, let's set our mind on him and on his heart. And let's do it his way. 
That's the right call of the Christian. That's how we should do this. If you sin, confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2 now. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you what? May not sin, because you may not. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever had a kid ask you this question, say, hey, can I have this or can I have that? And what is your response supposed to be? I don't know. Can you? You should ask, may I? Anyway, I'm being that staunchy old man already. It's great. My children... Get out of my church, Roger. <laughs> anyway, okay. My little, my little children, I love you. I love you. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. I love this picture. Look, you've got the Father and you have an advocate with that Father. And who is our advocate? Jesus, and we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Not for ours only. Who is our in that statement? It's Christians, the church, right? Not for ours only, but who did Christ die for? Sorry, my throat's breaking up crazy. But also for those of the whole world, God wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. You must read it for what it says. Such a powerful statement. So Jesus didn't just propitiate or die for or spill his blood for the sins of the church. It is for the whole world, all those who will believe. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. But Nathan, that just says this is how we know we've come to know him. I'm getting there. This is how we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, say it with me, church, is a liar. Yippee. And the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, whoever keeps what, church? His word. In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. I have harped on this for many years now that we've replaced the definition in the Bible of love with the culture's definition of love. And love just simply means let everybody do everything and don't worry about it, including let people run towards that precipice called hell without ever telling them they need to stop, they need to repent, they need to turn. That's not loving. And I've quoted it a thousand times, but you should YouTube it for yourself sometime. Type in Pendulette on Christians and hell. Pendulette on Christians in hell. When the, when the most renowned atheist or one of the most renowned atheists in our culture stands there and says, if you believe in, with all your heart that people who do not believe in your Savior, in your Jesus, are going to hell and you don't tell them about it, that's the most unloving thing a person can do. That's an atheist's view of that. That is the most unloving thing you can do. But the point here is that we've manipulated the form love. We've, we've made it mean all kinds of things. How are we truly perfected in love? How does this happen? If we keep God's word. 
You want to know how to love better? Do as Jesus said. Do what Jesus commanded. Oh, we're back to Exodus 33 again. It's the same principle. Teach me your ways. Let me know your ways that I may know you. Those who know God love. Those who know God love. And love is perfected in our obedience to the Father. I hope you're connecting all of these dots with me this morning. The one who says, verse 4, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are, and here's where we turn the relationship around, by this we know that we are in him. Not he in us, but in him. We are in him. The one who says that he abides in him, in God, ought himself to walk in the same manner that God walked. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 21, going through 24. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. What are we doing? His commandments and the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of, the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. It's both ways. I know him and he knows me. I'm abiding in him and he's abiding in me. But how is that identified? By us keeping his commandments. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Next week, Barney's going to be picking up on this. Uh, Sarah and I and the girls are going to take a, a vacation, a much-needed vacation, and we're going, to, we're going to go hang out with a family with three times the amount of kids that most people have. And you might not think that's a vacation, but that's a vacation to me. So, so we're going to go hang out, and it's going to be fun. And Barney's going to pick up on this next week, and he's going to be talking about the idea that knowing God is important, being known by God is important. It's evidenced by our obedience, but we have an advocate. We have a helper that is with us, and he has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Isn't that a beautiful truth? You're not alone in obeying God. This is not some sort of human religion where you just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You do need to learn self-control, yippee. You do need to learn that, but you have the Spirit of God who's convicting you and teaching you and training you and reminding you of all the things that Jesus has said. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5 verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And whoever loves the father loves the child born to him. That term right there, loves the child, is not talking about Jesus. 
To love the child means to love the children of God, his people. Look at what verse 2 says. I'll confirm it. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children, plural, of God. It's not Jesus. It's our love for one another. I get sick and tired of hearing this in the church, and I know you hear me say that a lot, so you're probably sick and tired of that. But, but I get sick and tired of hearing people say, man, I hate the church. Or man, I want, you know, the motto of the modern church is, here's a church for people who don't like the church. If you don't like the church, you got a problem. His name is Jesus. If you don't like the church, you better take it up with the one who died for her. You better take it up with the one who loves her. The ones who belong to God love the church. You might not love the politics. I get the point. You might not love the politics, but you need to love the people. Because what he says right here is is that we will know... that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. It's back to unity. Obedience brings us together. That's the point of all of this. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And here's the line I want you to underline and I want you to put on your mirror in your bathroom. His commandments are not burdensome. Everybody's sleepy this morning, but I need you to get with me. His commandments are not burdensome, church. They are good. They are life. They are truth, and they help us to know him better every day of our life. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. I guess there goes that being stuck in sin forever. You are born of God, good. You overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We trust God and we walk it out. Verse five, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Do you notice those verses? It does not leave you out of the mix. It doesn't say who overcame the world, Jesus did, yay. It says who overcomes the world, those who believe him, those who walk after him, you and me. That's who overcomes the world. Okay, now for the express statement of being known by God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll be wrapping up. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are his. Ah, but don't stop at that verse. Don't stop at that part of the verse. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Sin, evil, all of it is wrapped up in there. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Why, church? Because if you don't, what are you? You're a liar. You're a liar. Church, this is not, I hope you understand this. I I believe truly that you do. Eternity is not a game. This is nothing small. We're talking about, hear me, 
I, I know your kids are important. I know your, your work is important. I know your family is important. God gives allowance for all of that and says you should love them. You should lay down your life for them. You should do those things. You should take care of those people. But please hear me. God is number one in your life. And you cannot say that God is number one. You cannot say that you love him and that he loves you. You can't speak with the assurance of, of Edmund in Chronicles of Narnia that he knows you if you refuse to submit to him. You cannot have that confidence. Eternity is too important for you to play this game that says, hey, I think I'm close enough. I think I'm close enough. Why? Because grandpa told me I was close enough. Mama told me I was close enough. My generic reading of the Bible tells me that I'm close enough. That last internet meme I saw told me that I was close enough. I'm good enough. You can make it. You're awesome. Am I the only one who grows tired of those things? Am I, am I like, I'm, I'm it. Because I look at them and I'm like, I just puked a little bit. I don't know what just happened here. I don't think we understand this. Eternity is too important for us to play these games. Because the last thing anybody in this room wants, and this is how I know your heart, the, the last thing any person in this room wants is to go and see Jesus on that final day and for him to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And then, and then, if he says that, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar that we're going to be the people or those people are going to be the people who look at it and say, hold on, Lord, 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 you notice I'm calling you Lord because I know you. Lord, I did all of these cool religious things. I went to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every Sunday, only on Sunday. <laughs> I, I went to church every Sunday. I did this, I did this, I did this. And God goes, okay, that's great. You treated your wife horribly. You didn't love anybody in your life. You never were willing to die for anything. You didn't surrender. In view of my mercy, you were too proud to see yourself as a humble servant of all. You don't look a thing like me. Sorry, I don't know who you are. This is too important of a game for us, to, uh, important of a thing to play games with it, church. We have to look at what God's word says and we have to do what he commands. And here's my promise to you. Again, God's commands are not burdensome and you're not alone. The spirit of God is dwelling in you if you truly are a follower of Jesus. You have Christians that come beside you and call you to righteous living or should. Do you understand it, church? Do you see what I'm getting at? It's far too easy to get into the habit of hearing the perverted gospel message that we are saved by grace, therefore nothing is expected of us. You know that nobody in this room would ever say blatantly, nobody would ever say, I'm going to continue to sin that grace might abound. None of you would say that that boldly, right? I wouldn't say it that boldly. You'd never say it that boldly. But there are besetting sins in your life that keep haunting you, and you won't kill them. You won't drop them. You won't get accountability. You won't run to the altar on your knees and say, God, I can't do it. You won't do those things because you keep believing what you won't say, and that is grace will cover it all. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. This is too serious a matter, church. 
Too serious a matter for us to play games with it. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I hope that you can see that the two things that are inextricably connected here is love and obedience. Being known by God and obedience. They can't, they're so mangled together and so intertwined, you can't get that ball of yarn unknotted. This is what we are called to so let me end with this. Let me give you this final piece. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-8. through 8. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you have everything you need to obey him? The answer is yes, church. Through the true knowledge of him, you have come to know him and be known by him through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And if you're known by God and know him, what do you have? You have his spirit. Verse four, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. How many of you want to be like Jesus? I want to be like Jesus. You can become like the divine nature. And I'm saying this to somebody here. I don't actually know who you are, but I definitely feel this one. You can stubbornly reject what the preacher says. Doesn't matter. I'm telling you exactly what the word of God reads. You can, you can not like me. That's a risk that I take. But you cannot reject what God says. He says boldly and clearly that if you want to be a partaker of the divine nature, you have to, you have to die to yourself. Verse 5, Now, for this reason, also applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, we finally arrive at that magical thing that we all claim to do, love. But please, please let me show you the foundation that love is built on. Remember verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. The foundation that love is built on is faith, which leads to moral excellence, which leads to knowledge, which leads to self-control, which leads, leads to perseverance, which leads to godliness, which leads to brotherly kindness, which results in that glorious building of love. You want to love? Do it God's way. Otherwise, John's words are still true. You're a liar. You're a liar. I know what you're thinking. This is positive, Nathan. Thanks so much for such an uplifting message. I would utterly hate you if I stood here before you and told you how awesome you were and how cool you look to me because you all look cool. You dress up nice. But I would hate you if I told you those things and never told you what the Word of God says. And I'll be this bold. Every preacher in this world who never tells you that truth, what God says, not my conjecture. You can throw out my comments if you want. Eliminate them all. Just go to what's written on the pages of Scripture. Any preacher who does not tell you that does not love you. I'm telling you, church, you need to hear it. 
I want you to be encouraged. And do you know what encouragement means? It means to have courage built into you. You want to know what your courage is now? You've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You've been given everything you need. If you sin and fall short, guess what you get to do? You get to run to the Father. You don't have to sit there and say, God's so mad at me, he wants me dead, I'm going to stoke the fires of hell. No, run to him. Run to him. Rest at his feet. We can boldly approach the throne of grace, right? That even means in our sin, in a place of repentance. Run to the Father, dump it in his lap. He's the one who cleanses you of all unrighteousness. You want an encouraging message? It's not that the way you are is good enough. It's that the way God wants you to be is given to you, it's stated for you, and it's empowered in your life to achieve. You can do this if you will trust him. Amen? God loves you people. He loves you more than I love you. He loves you more than I can love you. But he loves you. And he's called you to righteousness and holiness. He's told you, you want to be mine? Look like me. You want to show everybody in the world that you're mine? Look like me. That's what you do. Every day of your life. How many of you will be honest with me and raise your hands and say, I need help with this. I need help with this. Now look around this room. Keep your hands up and look around this room. If we will continue to follow after God and we will continue to obey him and walk in his light as he is in the light, guess what's going to happen? This church is going to become more unified than any church you've ever seen. We're going to become closer together with one another. Why? Not because you like all the things the pastor likes. You're not nerdy enough to like all the things the pastor likes. Shut it! Listen, holiness, we're, we are liking the things our Savior likes. Holiness and righteousness and godliness and truth. I want you to be encouraged today. As we take communion, I want you to keep your minds on these truths. I want you to know. I want you to know that God loves you enough to tell you the truth and to call you to righteousness, to call you to the things that he wants you to be and wants you to do. It's an amazing thing. So this morning as we take communion, Mark's going to say a few words, but I want, you to, I want you to give yourself to Jesus and say, Lord, maybe I haven't been the obedient person you've called me to be. Maybe I keep falling short, but you love me, right? You love me. And in that love, I can do it. In that love and in that spirit and in your truth, I can walk after you. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.